We've come together to study the Word of God and study it, the Word, that's what we will do. But we always begin with a word of prayer. So I invite you to bow your heads with me as we pray together this morning. Father in heaven, we have come together at this early hour because we want manna from heaven. And Lord, I pray that this morning we will be fed with heavenly food. Lord, please speak to your children. Put your words in my mouth. And as you said to Moses, teach me what I should say. Lord, we live in a solemn time of earth's history. It's a time where you are calling us to come up higher. And as we look at this example of a wonderful man in the Old Testament, may we desire that very thing, Lord, to come up higher in our walk with you. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, go with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Genesis, the sixth chapter. Genesis, the sixth chapter. This is where we're going to be spending the bulk of our time this morning and tomorrow morning. So the next two worships will be a part one and part two. Genesis, the sixth chapter. And we will begin in verse 17. Scripture says this, And behold, I, even I, do bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh wherein is the breath of life from under heaven. And everything that is in the earth shall die. When I read this passage, it seems to be an oxymoron that God would speak something like this. It is contrary to the character of God when you read this verse that he would destroy everything on the face of the earth. Why such a harsh pronouncement of destruction? Why did God say that he would destroy all flesh, that it would die? These were men and women, after all, that were created in his likeness. He created them as an expression of his character. In the image of God, they were created. The crowning act of the creation week, and now just several hundred years from when God breathed into the breath of uh, breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life he is now pronouncing the sentence of execution upon the very thing that he had created in love well verse 1 and 2 of Genesis chapter 6 gives us a little portal into why God makes this pronouncement and it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth that the daughter that uh, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair, and took them wives of all which they chose. This is a theme in our Q&A session yesterday, kind of ran through the whole, th- whole time together, the idea of 
marrying outside of the faith. And as was eloquently stated a couple of nights ago, this is the only sin that is recorded in Genesis chapter 6 that is the reason why God brought the destruction of the earth, the flood of destruction upon the earth. Now, of course, there was other sins, but this is the one that's specifically stated. The intermarrying between the sons of God with the daughters of men. The sons of God being the lineage of Seth. The daughters of men being the lineage of Cain. Cain. They saw each other and they began to intermarry. And as a result of this, the Bible tells us in verse 5, And God saw the wickedness of man that it was, the wickedness of man was great in the earth, And listen to this, every imagination of the thought of his heart was what? Only evil continually. Now, my center margin makes a very interesting statement here. It says, the Hebrew word signifies not only the imagination, but also the purposes and desires. The thoughts of man, the imaginations of man, the purposes of man were only evil continually. Everything that man thought at that time was evil continually. It's a good piece of advice that's given to us in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 5. The Bible says, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. The imagination is a wonderful gift that God has given to us. It's a fantastic gift that God has given to us. In fact, the imagination, when it is properly used, elevates the mind, ennobles the thinking, and draws the sinner closer to its Savior. I'm sorry, friends, but... Actually, I'm not sorry. But as we spend time imagining what heaven is going to be like, That ennobles and enriches our spiritual life. When we spend time imagining what it was when Jesus went to the cross and gave his life as a sacrifice, that is enriching and ennobling. God gave us the imagination as a powerful tool to draw us closer to him. If you have some extra time sometime and you find yourself in need of something to do, take your Bible... And read through the passages of Scripture that describe what heaven is going to be like. Read through the story of the last 48 hours of the life of Christ. And then in your imagination, let your imagination grasp it scene by scene. And I guarantee that it will enrich your spiritual life. But this is not what was happening in the antediluvian world. The Bible says they were using their imagination for that which is opposed to God. Their thoughts were only evil continually. This unholy alliance between the Sethites and the Canaanites was responsible for the rapid increase of immorality and wickedness in the world that was so prevalent in the time of the flood that caused God to make the pronouncement, I will destroy the earth with a flood. Now, I hope this afternoon we get zero questions on this issue in our Q&A session. Because I believe it's abundantly clear. We don't need to talk about the issue any longer. The flood story stands as a testimony 
of the intermarrying between believers and non-believers. If there's any other questions, just read the story yourself and pray and ask God to speak to you through it. But I want you to notice the emphasis here in verse 11 and 12. God continues the explanation of the condition of the earth. It says this, The earth also was corrupt. The earth was what? Before God. And the earth was filled with violence. And God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. Was it corrupt in the time of the flood? Yes or no? Yes or no? Yes. Three times in two verses, God says, corrupt, corrupt, corrupt. It was violent. The imagination of the thoughts of man was only evil continually. Verse 6. And it repented, which literally means in the Hebrew to be sorrow, to be sorry for or to regret. It repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. I cannot imagine how wicked it must have been for God to get to the point where he was sorry that he had created man. He was remorseful that he had created man. It was so wicked and the crowning act of God's creation that was created in the image of God had marred God's image so much that God was sorrowful that he had created man. And so he makes this statement in verse 7. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both men and beasts, and creeping thing, and fowl of the air, for it repented me that I have made man. Lord said he would destroy them. Now let me give you a little more of an impact here from inspired commentary, Patriarchs and Prophets, page 91. It says this, Neither the marriage relation nor the rights of property were respected. Talking about the flood. Whoever coveted the wives or the possessions of his neighbor took them by force, and man exalted in deeds of violence. They delighted in destroying the life of the animals, and the use of flesh for food rendered them still more cruel and bloodthirsty until they came to regard human life with astonishing, astonishing indifference. That was the flood. That, that was the earth before the flood. Vast amounts of wickedness. And that's why Scripture tells us, jot it down in your notes, Matthew 24, verse 38. For in the days that were before the flood, they were eating, drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark. Now, there's nothing wrong with eating, drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage. There's nothing wrong with that. But they were doing it to such an extent that, that, that the perversion of these things became hideous and grotesque in the eyes of God. They perverted them so much that any blessing that was in them at one time had been taken away. So God said, I will destroy the earth with a flood. Now, I think you're, I, I hope you're seeing the parallels between what we've just looked at so far and the time that we are living in today. We find coveting is very popular in our society. We covet each other's possessions, our cars, our home, our property, our jobs. We covet each other's spouses, our husbands and our wives. We look at things that... We should not be looking at 
We take the, we regard human life with astonishing indifference. And friends, it's not just those in the world that regard life with astonishing, astonishing indifference, but it's even the Church of God, Seventh-day Adventists, who regard human life with astonishing indifference because we're not out there working for the salvation of souls. We're no better than the people in the antediluvian world after our own ambitious desires, not spending the time devoted in service to the Lord. And I appreciated the statement that was said in the Q&A panel yesterday, the illustration or the example of folks that work 90 plus hours, but they still find time in their schedule to do three Bible studies a week. What a testimony of what is the priority in life. We're no better than the antediluvian world in that respect. But let me bring things into perspective and focus where the direction I'm going this morning. Luke chapter 17. Let's go there, please. Keep your finger in Genesis. We'll come back to that. Luke chapter 17. Matthew, Mark, Luke. Seventeen and verse twenty-six. The Bible says this. Luke seventeen twenty-six. We're familiar with this text. It says, "And as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be also in the days of the what? The Son of Man." Jesus is making parallels here, Matthew 24 and Luke chapter 17, between the destruction of the earth in the time of the flood and the destruction of the earth in the end of this earth's history. And he says, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. If you want an idea of what the earth will be like in the time of this and in the end of this earth's history, look at the flood. Look at the story of Lot. Jesus specifically says, this is an example of what it will be like in the last days. Now, if that is true, which I believe it is, I find it interesting that the devil is spending time trying to rewrite the story of Noah. I hope none of you wasted your time watching the movie Noah that just recently came out not too long ago. What an utter and epic waste of time it would have been. I didn't watch the movie. I just read uh, you know, articles on it and things like that. And it was so twisted and so, you know, the only thing that was true to the Bible account is that there was a guy by the name of Noah who built a boat. That's pretty much it. The rest of it was just kind of conjured up in the mind of some Hollywood producer. They came up with this fanciful story and Christians flocked to the movie theaters because they thought it was a religious theme. And it's twisting their understanding of this Bible account that God has given to us to give us a clear perspective of what the condition of the earth is going to be like in the end of this earth's history. And it made this man of God out, this righteous man of God, as some sort of raving lunatic who was mad and angry at the world, trying to keep people from getting on the ark instead of appealing for them to come on the ark. God forbid that we would waste our time as Christians spending time with the foolishness of this world. But you know, most times when we look at the story of the flood, there's a lot of time that is spent on the description of the wickedness of the world, which we spent a little time here this morning looking at that, only for context. But what I want to do this morning is this. If the flood is an illustration of what the earth will be like in the end of this earth's history, that means that Noah is a representation of what God's people will be like in the end of this earth's history. 
Are you all with me this morning? Amen? Amen. If the flood is an illustration of what the wickedness of this world will be like in the end of this earth's history, then Noah is a representation of how God's people would live their life in the time of the wickedness in the end of this earth's history. So what I want to do is I want to look at a brief biography of Noah. The Bible gives us quite a bit of a description of his character, and it's worth time taking a look at it. So go back with me, if you would, to Genesis chapter 6. And while you are turning there, the word Noah, the name Noah, simply means rest. And after the flood, Noah did bring in a short period of time of rest upon the earth, rest from the wickedness from the antediluvian world that had been destroyed by the flood. He had a great grandfather. His, fa- his grandfather was Methuselah, the man who lived the longest on this earth. His great grandfather, Methuselah's dad, was Enoch, the man who walked with God. Could you imagine what it would be like to have a great grandfather like Enoch? Noah's great grandfather was Enoch. Noah was the tenth in descendant from Adam. And he was the second father of the human race. He was 480 years old when God said, Noah, I have a job for you. Noah lived to be 950 years old. So if you do the math, Noah was in the middle of his life when God tapped him up to do this great work for him. Now, there's some of us here in the audience that are a little more older in age. And that simply is an illustration for us that God even has a great work for us to do in the prime of our life, not just in our youth. Amen? Amen. And young people, that means that maybe now God's not ready for you to do a work for him. Of course, he always has something for you to do, but maybe the great work that he has for you to do is somewhere later on down in your life, in the prime of your life. So we must find time to always be willing to do God's bidding, whether it's early in our life, in the middle of our life, or at the end of our life. We never know when God is going to tap us up and call us forth to do a great work for Him. Noah's in the prime of his life, and God says, I have a great work for you to do. Verse 8 of Genesis chapter 6 The Bible says that, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. What did Noah find? How many of you want to find grace in the eyes of the Lord? That was only a few of you. How many of you want to find grace in the eyes of the Lord? Praise God. So if we want to find grace in the eyes of the Lord, we ask ask ourselves the question, how did Noah live his life so that he found grace in the eyes of the Lord? And the Bible gives us a description of his character in verse 9. And if you're one who underlines your Bible, underline this verse. If you're not, then just put a big star next to it in your notes. Genesis chapter 6 and verse 9. We're looking at the biography of Noah here. Scripture says, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a, number one, he was a what? Just man. And what? Perfect when? What generation did Noah live in? Wicked generation. He was just. He was perfect in his generations. And Noah walked 
with God. How many of you would like this to be written about you when you're in your 40s? Just perfect in your generation and one who walked with God. Now, let's just, just spend a few minutes here thinking about this. The Bible says that Noah was a just man. In the original context here, in the original language, it literally means that Noah was a righteous man. What does it mean? He was a righteous man. And the Bible comes right out and says it in Genesis chapter 7 and verse 1. It says, And the Lord said unto Noah, Come thou and all thy house into the ark, for thee I have seen, or have I seen, what? Righteous before me in this generation. What we're going to see this morning as we continue to move through this biography of Noah is that the theme of righteousness runs straight through his life. It's like a, it's like a silver uh, a, a thread that runs through the life of Noah that he was righteous in his generation. The Bible says he was a just man. He was a righteous man. He was a man of moral integrity that feared God more than he feared God. Men, he was a modern-day Micaiah with moral courage, doing what God said instead of what man said and what man thought. We spent a whole sermon talking about moral integrity and courage, so we won't go into that any longer. But he was not a weak man. He was a man of strong conviction. He was a man who said, whatever the Lord says, that will I do. Listen to this, Patriarchs and Prophets, page 90. Two, it says, amid the prevailing corruption, Methuselah, Noah, and many others labored. What did they do? They labored to keep alive the knowledge of the true God and to stay the tie of moral evil. Noah and his friends, Methuselah, his grandfather, and, 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 and perhaps others. The Bible says there are many others. She says there are many others who labored to keep alive a knowledge of God, they were like salmon swimming upstream in the time that they were living in. Have you ever seen this? One time I was in uh, uh, British Columbia, and it, it, there was a salmon run. And my wife and I went to go watch the salmon run. And the, the river's running one direction, and the salmon have a focus, and they're going in the opposite direction. They have a final destination that they want to get to, and that is home. Nothing will stop them. No river is too strong. No waterfall is too high. No obstacle is too big. They keep going and going and going to get to the final destination even if it costs them their life. That was Noah, trying to stay the tie of moral evil in the world. What are you doing? What are you doing as a young person to contribute to keeping alive a knowledge of God in the country of Malaysia? What are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing to stay the tie of moral evil in your family? What are you doing to stay the tie of moral evil in your home, in your church, in your own personal life? What barriers are you putting up? What hedges of protection are you putting in your life to keep that moral evil from invading your spiritual life, your family, your community, and your country? Oh, for more Noah's in the day and age that we live in. Amen? Bible says he was a righteous man. He was just, and he was upright, man of moral integrity. But the Bible goes on, and it says that Noah was, after he was just, the Bible says he was perfect. 
And I like how the, the, the Bible author here doesn't just stop with perfect, but he says he was perfect in his generation. And there is a, a movement of people <clears throat> within Christianity who think that it is spiritually impossible for us to be perfect. But the Bible tells us that Noah living in the most wicked time of earth's history, that he was perfect in the generation that he lived in. In the Hebrew, the word perfect there means to be whole or complete. Don't let your mind think that it means that Noah never sinned. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But the Bible still calls him a perfect man. He was whole, he was complete, because he was submitted to God in his relationship with him. He was perfect. And if Noah was perfect in his generation, remember, Noah is a representation of what God's people, he's an illustration of how God's people will live their life in the end of this earth's history. And if Noah was perfect in his generation, then biblically speaking, you and I can be perfect in our generation by having that whole and complete relationship with God through absolute surrender to him. Would you say amen? amen. He was just, the Bible says. He was perfect. He was surrendered to God. And then the Bible goes on and it says after it says he was just, he was a perfect man in his generations. And then the Bible says that Noah did what? He walked with God. Now, this is interesting to me because there's only one other character in the Bible that we, we think of when we think of the idea of walking with God. Who is that? Enoch, of course. You know, that's the first thing that comes to our mind. Enoch walked with God and God what? Took him. Where did he take him? Took him to heaven. And we look at Enoch and we, we in a sense, we covet his, his, his translation to the kingdom of heaven. And we look at him as an example of how we ought to live our lives, which is a good thing. And that's exactly what Noah did. You see, Noah was born about 69 years after Enoch had been translated to heaven. As I mentioned, Enoch was his great-grandfather, and I'm sure, I believe it is biblically, uh, uh, there's biblical evidence that, that Noah had taught to him the principles that Enoch used in his spiritual walk with the Lord. And he emulated and copied those, those examples in his own personal life. And that's why the Bible records that Noah walked with God. Those of us that have been in the, at this a little bit longer this spiritual walk with the Lord, give the young people an example. Give them an example as Enoch gave Noah an example of what it means to walk with God. Talk to them about it. Explain, them, so explain to them the beauty of having a walk with the Lord. Illustrate to them that God is possessing your life and I guarantee that there will be young people saved in the kingdom of heaven because of your example as Noah was saved in the, in the ark because of Enoch's example. The Bible says he walked with God. Now, as I thought about this, I thought to myself, did Noah get the short end of the stick or what? Enoch walks with God, and God takes him. Noah walks with God, and he has a bunch of, a big headache on his hands. And I thought to myself, man, it seems like it's kind of difficult on Noah here. You know, Enoch got it easy. Walk with God, boom, he's taken to heaven, and now he's up there having a good time. Noah walks with God, and God says, okay, I want you to preach for 120 years and tell everybody what they're doing is wrong. And if they don't get in the ark, they're going to die because of it. Man, 
But as I thought about it and as I meditated on these two men who the Bible said walked with God, yet they had vastly different outcomes, the, the, the conclusion that I came to was this. We are to walk with God as Noah and Enoch walked with God. But we are to leave the effects and the results of that walking with God in God's hand. Because God has something different for every single one of his children. He may choose you to be translated as he did with Enoch. He may choose you to be a preacher of righteousness as he chose Noah. He may choose you to be a prisoner like he did with Micaiah. I don't know what he's going to choose for you. But we need to be faithful to God in walking with him day after day after day. Amen? Amen. So, we're looking at the character sketch of, of, of Noah here. His biography. The Bible says, number one, he was a what man? He was a just man. Number two, the Bible says he was a? He was perfect when? In his generation. And number three, the Bible says that he what? Walked with God. Now again, if, if the flood is an illustration of the end of this earth's history, then Noah is an illustration of how God's people will live their lives in the corruptness of this world's history in the end. He was perfect or righteous. He, or he was just righteous. He was perfect in his generation. And he, the Bible says, walked with God. Patriarchs and Prophets, page 96, the, uh, the Spirit of Prophecy says this. Noah stood like a rock amid the tempest. Surrounded by popular contempt and ridicule, he distinguished himself by his holy integrity and unwavering faithfulness. You listening to this description of his character? She says he had holy integrity and unwavering faithfulness. A power attended his words, for it was the voice of God through man to his servants. Connecting with man, or sorry, connecting God with men, uh, sorry, connection with God made him strong in the strength of infinite power. What made him strong in the strength of infinite power? Connection with God. You know, as I thought about this, there's no way that Noah could have done what he did if Noah had not been daily walking with the Lord. And we all want God to use us to do great things for his kingdom. That's why we come to these types of events, because we want to have that deeper relationship with God. We all want to be used by him to be modern-day reformers, not for our own uh, selfish ambition, but to further the kingdom. But it all starts with my appeal on Sabbath morning, that time together with the Lord each morning, walking together with him through the scriptures in Bible study and prayer. Noah would never have been able to do what he did if he had not been walking with the Lord. It would have been a different story. He would not have been called a just man. He would not have been called a perfect man. He would not have been called one who walked with God if he hadn't done it each morning, each day, walking with the Lord. So I ask you the question, how is your walk with the Lord? Oh, it's doing really good right now because you're around a bunch of other people who want to walk with the Lord. It's doing really good right now because the, the ministers have been standing up and challenging us to get up and to have our devotions and to commit our lives to the Lord in service to Him. It's going great right now. What's going to happen on Friday? This coming Friday. You go home tomorrow. Everybody's going to be gone. You will be home, alone, in the stillness of your house. Where will you be then? Where will your walk be then? 
Where will your commitment and devotion to the Lord be then? Is your commitment and determination to serve the Lord based on the people that you are around? Or is it based upon your personal experience in the study of God's word? Noah didn't have people to encourage him along. There were a few, but not many. Noah had to learn how to walk on his own. But the Bible doesn't stop with these three descriptions of Noah's character. It goes on. The last verse of Genesis chapter 6, the Bible says this about Noah. Verse 22, Thus did Noah, according to... According to... All that God commanded him, so did he. What do we call that? Obedience. And for impact, the Bible doesn't leave it there. In verse seven, chapter 7, verse 5, the Bible restate, restates it again or repeats it again. It says, and Noah did according unto all that the Lord had what? Commanded him. What do we call that? Obedience. What was Noah? He was a... He was an obedient servant of the Lord. It's one thing to walk with the Lord in your devotional time in the morning. It's another thing to take what the Lord tells you to do and do it. It's one thing to be chosen by God to be a minister for Him. Not a minister in the strictest sense of the term as I am a pastor in a church, but ministers of God in sharing the truths of His Word as Pastor Ramden defined that yesterday in our Q&A session. But it's another thing to actually take that calling and to put it into practice in our lives. And the Bible tells us that Noah was an obedient man. He was just, he was perfect, he walked with the Lord, and then the Bible says he did not hesitate in his obedience. All that the Lord commanded him, even if it did not make sense to him, Noah did it. Now remember, inspiration tells us that at this time there had been no rain on the earth. The water that, that watered the ground came up as a mist from the ground. There had been no water that had fallen from the heavens. And now Noah's preaching this message for 120 years that there's going to be water enough that falls from the heavens that will cover the highest peaks. It will cover every piece of ground on this earth and that the only place of safety was inside the ark. It didn't make sense according to science. But Noah was obedient to God. And listen, my young friends, it does not make sense in the eyes of the world to serve the Lord. But it doesn't matter what makes sense to them. It's what makes sense to God. Are you obedient to the Lord's calling in your life? Will you go where he calls you to go? Can the same thing that was said of Noah be said of you? That you obey all of the commandments of the Lord. Talk to the Lord about it tomorrow morning in your worship, tonight before you go to bed, and say, Lord, I want to be like Noah. I want to follow all that you command me. I want to be written in the ledger of heaven that I am a just, a perfect man or woman, and one who walks with the Lord and is obedient. Lord, I want this experience. Noah was able to walk in the time of wickedness. I want to walk in the wickedness that pervades in the world today. But what else do we know about Noah? Well, the Bible tells us something else in 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5, it says something else about Noah's character. I'll give you a second to get there. 2 Peter chapter 2 
and verse 5. Again, looking at Noah's character, the Bible says this, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. It says, and spared not the old world, but saved, which means to guard and protect Noah, saved Noah, protect Noah, guarded Noah, the eighth person, eight in his family, a preacher of what? What was he? A preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. So remember, there's this, there's this thread, this golden thread of righteousness that's running through the life of Noah. The Bible says he was a just man or he was a righteous man. And now it only makes sense that if he was a just and righteous man, that he would be a preacher of? Makes sense, doesn't it? So now he's delivering a message of righteousness. The message that Noah delivered in the time of the flood, that the world would be destroyed, pointing out sin, calling it by its name, and calling people to come into the ark was a message of righteousness, message of salvation. Call them to come in. He's a man of righteousness. He was a preacher of righteousness. And here's the interesting thing to me. For 120 years, Noah preached the same message day after day after day after day. Get into the ark. Get into the ark. Get into the ark. The earth is going to be destroyed. A flood of water is coming. The place of safety is in the ark. He preached the same message day after day after day for 120 years. And he never got tired because that was the message of present truth. But yet there are some in our church that are always looking for new and fanciful theology. Something that tickles the mind and the imagination. They get tired of the old waymarks of uh, Bible truth that are present truth for this time. They weary of hearing the message of the three angels' messages. They get weary of hearing the message of the Sabbath reform and the importance of keeping the seventh-day Sabbath holy from sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. They weary of hearing the message of how we are to keep our bodies pure and healthy as a temple of God. They get weary of hearing the present truth message and they go seeking after the cisterns of Babylon looking for something new and exciting. But that wasn't Noah. Noah was a preacher of righteousness. Same message. Faithful. Day after day after day after day because that was the message that needed to be heard at that time. Listen, young people, don't ever be tired of the wonderful gospel, the everlasting gospel that God has given to us in Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 through 12. There is nothing more pertinent to the time that we are living in than that portion of scripture. Never get tired. If you get tired, wrestle with the Lord in the morning in your prayer time and say, Lord, change this passage in my mind and make it fresh and revived in my mind. Help me to see things in this passage that I have never seen, even though I've read it dozens, if not hundreds of times. Make it fresh and alive in my life because this is the answer to the world, the, the problems in the world today. Yeah, people spend time talking about how to reach the postmodern world with all these fancy little you know, ways of reaching out to the postmodern world. It's very simple, friends. The message that will reach the postmodern world is the message of the three angels' message in Revelation chapter 14. Point blank, very simply put. That's what we'll do. That's what will reach the message. That's the everlasting gospel. Let us not be weary of preaching this message as Noah was not weary of preaching his. 
So we look at the results of Noah's evangelistic series, if you will. He was a righteous man. He was a perfect man. He walked with the Lord. He was obedient. He was a preacher of righteousness. And he preached for 120 years. Most of my evangelistic series that I do are four weeks long, and that's it. And at the end of those four weeks, I am wasted. I can't imagine preaching an evangelistic series for 120 years and build an ark. They had stamina back then. But as you look at the results of Noah's evangelistic series, how many were saved in the ark? There are only eight that were saved in the ark out of the hundreds and thousands of people that were on the earth at that time. So in terms of numerical value, Noah was not very successful, was he? As the, man, as the eyes of man observe his success. But remember, the story of Noah is an illustration of the what? Of the what? Of the end of this world. And in that little illustration there of, of, of the effectiveness of Noah's evangelistic series, that there were only eight people that were saved in the ark, and praise God, those eight people were his family members. Oh, may God help us win our family members into the kingdom of heaven. Amen? Amen. Some of the hardest people to reach are our family. But what we find is this, that in the last days, contrary to popular opinion, the vast majority of the people will not be saved. The vast majority of people will be lost. And tomorrow morning, as we continue to massage this story out a little bit more, we're going to look at the face of the wicked. Who were in that group of wicked people outside of the ark? We're going to look at the face of the wicked, and we're going to see some very interesting things tomorrow morning. But in terms of human success, Noah was not very successful. But what we find from that is that the vast majority of the people will be lost, not saved. Jesus says, broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be that go in thereat. But narrow is the way that leadeth unto life eternal, and few there be that find it. John tells us in Revelation chapter 20, as he sees in, Revel in, in, in prophetic panorama, as he sees the uh, end of the 1,000 years in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 9, he says that the wicked were numbered as the sands of the sea. We don't grasp that as humans. It's hard for us to understand how many people are actually going to be lost and how much weeping there will be in the kingdom of heaven when we, by God's grace, get there and we think back about the wasted opportunities that we could have used to win souls into the kingdom of heaven because we were after our own selfish, ambitious goals. May God change our hearts and give us a deeper, profound love for other people. To waste no time in the reaching out for others. To spend time in our prayer closet interceding to move man through prayer by God. What a powerful thing to see men moved by God through prayer. So I want to ask you a question and we're kind of wrapping this up here. We've looked at Noah's biography, but I want to ask a question, and the question is this. What does the ark symbolize in the story? The Bible doesn't explicitly come out and state this, but again, we're looking at the parallels or the, 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 uh, yeah, the parallels between the story of Noah and the end times. What does the ark represent? 
In the uh, spirit of prophecy, Ellen White does not come right out point blank and tell us what the ark represented. But if you read about the ark in the spirit of prophecy, time and time again, she refers to the ark as the ark of safety. What does she call it? The ark of safety. So I asked the question, what did the ark provide for the antediluvian world? It provided what? Safety. Safety from what? From destruction, from the wrath of God. Now let me ask you a couple of more questions. What ultimately, if you distill the message of Noah down to its simplicity, what in the simplicity of his message, what was Noah's message? Simply put, the message of Noah was, get into the ark. Amen? Amen? Simply put, Noah's message was, get into the ark. Now, for the antediluvian world to come into the ark, they first had to come out of the world and come into the ark. The ark of what? Now, it's peculiar to me that in Revelation chapter 18, I mentioned this yesterday in the Q&A session, that in Revelation chapter 18, God is making a specific call, and he's calling for people to come out of Babylon. And it's the same message that Noah preached in the antediluvian time. He was calling the antediluvian world to come out of the world and into the ark of safety. God's people in the last days are calling people to come out of Babylon into the ark of safety of the everlasting gospel that will translate us by God's grace into the kingdom of heaven if we obey it and follow it. By the time the door of the ark closed, there were two groups in the world. There were how many groups? Two. What were they? The ones on the outside and the ones on the inside. Listen, Noah's message was polarizing. It split the entire world down into two groups. And when that door of probation closed and Noah was sitting inside of the ark for seven days waiting for that flood to come, the entire world knew where their loyalties lie. Those on the outside were ridiculing the man of God. Those on the inside were obedient to God's command, even though it did not make sense to them. Noah's message split the world right down the middle. And friends, let me tell you something this morning. The message of the Seventh-day Adventist Church is no different. It's going to split the world right down the middle. And when the seven last plagues come, there will be a line of demarcation that will be drawn in the sand, and all the world will know where we stand, whether we stand on the side of righteousness or we stand on the side of unrighteousness. Now is the time to study that message to the world. Now is the time to implement it in your life. Now is the time to live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Now is the time. Don't wait until we get close to that time of the door closing, but make the decision now to obey God's word and to follow the example of Noah. But I want you to notice one more characteristic in Hebrews chapter 11, and then we'll wrap it up. Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews, the 11th chapter and the 7th verse. This is the chapter of faith, 
those that are counted as having great faith. The Bible says, by faith, Noah, being warned of God of things to not yet seen, or not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of the house. Listen to this. Saving of his house. By the which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness, which is by faith. There's that thread of righteousness again. He was a righteous man. He was a preacher of righteousness. He was an heir of righteousness. Noah has this theme or this thread of righteousness that runs through his life. But here's the thing. Noah did not just talk the talk, but Noah walked the walk as well. You can preach and teach and and, and do Bible studies and all that kind of stuff and, and say things that are very eloquent and very nice and very convincing. But the question is, are you walking the walk? Noah didn't just talk the talk, but he walked the walk. And the Bible tells us that what it was that condemned the world is that Noah built the ark. Read the passage. By which he condemned the world. It was the building of the ark that brought condemnation because the building of the ark and the invitation that Noah gave was an invitation of safety. They rejected that message of safety. Thus, they condemned themselves to destruction. The Spirit of Prophecy says this. Patriarchs and Prophets, page 95, and this is my last point. The Bible says this. He, Noah, is a godly man. He gave the world an example. What did he give the world? He gave the world an example of believing just what God says. Faith. Faith is believing that God's word will do what God's word says it will do even though it doesn't make sense to you. He gave the world an example of believing just what God says. Listen to this, listen to this, listen to this. Are you listening? All. How much? How much? How much? How much is all? All. All that he possessed, he invested in the ark. How much? Listen to me carefully. When the flood came, Noah did not have a house that was destroyed in the ark because all he had, he invested in the ark. When the flood came, Noah did not own any property that was destroyed in the flood because when the flood came, all that he had, he invested in the ark. When the flood came, none of Noah's money was floating in the flood of the water because all that Noah had, he invested in the building of the ark. Everything that Noah owned, all that he possessed, all that he had, he invested in the building of the ark of safety. He didn't hold anything back. He put it all into it. He believed what God said with all of his heart, soul, and mind that the world was coming to an end and that he had to do something to help save his family and anybody else that would come. Noah was not worried about building up his own earthly kingdom. Now listen to me carefully. I don't want you to take this in the wrong way. We do need to live in this world. We do need properties. We do need houses. We do need cars. We do need a job. We do need money. We need all of that stuff to live. But there's going to come a time in your life where God is going to tap you up and he's going to say, now's the time to make the sacrifice. 
You see, Noah preached for 120 years. It probably wasn't until the end of that 120 years that Noah started selling off all of his property, all of his belongings, pulling out his stocks and bonds, pulling out his money out of the bank, and investing it in the building of the ark. Probably towards the end there, as it was getting closer to the finishing of that ark. Right now, you might need that stuff. But there's going to come a time where God says, listen, now's the time to sell everything, to give it all to the service of the Lord. God forbid that we go to the kingdom of heaven with things on this world that could have been invested in the building of the ark. God forbid. God forbid. So the question is this. How much do you love the things that you have? <laughs> we love the things that we have if we're honest with ourselves. We love the properties, the possessions, the prestige, the job, the whatever it may be, things that we lust for. But our time and our talents and our resources and our life need to be invested in the building of the ark of safety. So my question to you this morning is, how many of you would like to follow the example of Noah? And when God calls you to sacrifice whatever it may be, that you will willingly say, yes, Lord, I will obey you and I will invest all in the building of the ark. Would you stand with me if that's your desire? Don't do it unless you mean it. You're not, you're not, you're not, you're not doing it for me. You're not doing it for the person sitting next to you. You're doing it for God. Lord, I'm willing. I'm willing when you call me to make that sacrifice to invest all in the building of the ark of safety. Help me, Lord, to pull up the roots of the desire for the things of this world out of my heart. To lay up treasures in heaven. Lord, we stand before you this morning because we are impressed with the great example of Noah that he has given to us. Living in a time of wickedness, yet he was still such a righteous man. And, oh, God, we have so far to go. Please help us, I pray. Our characters are so conformed to the world and by social pressures pushing in all around us. We are weak, but thou art strong. Father, we stand before you this morning because we are saying, please take away the love for the things of this world and give us a love for things that are above. God, give us a burden for souls as Noah had a burden for souls. Give us a burden to be radical in our work for you and to go wherever you call us to go. Thank you, Father, for these precious young people here in Malaysia that are making the stand. Oh, God, I pray that you will remind them of the commitments that they've made in this AOY, that you would remind them on Wednesday, on Thursday, on Friday, on Sabbath, when they go back to school, whatever it may be, remind them, Lord, of these commitments and challenge them to follow through, to not just talk the talk, but to walk the walk. Father, we are weak, but you are strong. Help us to this end, I pray. And I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. 
If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.